This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, everybody. Welcome into the latest edition of the Pipeline Podcast. Tim McMaster here along with MLB Pipeline's Jonathan Mayo and Jim Callis. Great podcast this week. Rule 5 draft coming up from the winter meetings just a couple of weeks away. 40-man rosters coming into view, and we're going to talk about guys who have not been protected, who could be possibilities at the top of that Rule 5 draft. We're also going to talk about Kyler Murray. We won't talk about his Heisman candidacy, but we will talk about him and the Oakland A's and everything going on with that as well. But first, before we get to that, we are thrilled to be joined by Mike Elias, Orioles' new executive vice president and general manager, to talk about this Orioles team, this Orioles system, and everything involved right now in Baltimore. Mike, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good to be on the show and talk to you guys as always. Absolutely. So, Mike, I got to start with the first question, and that is you don't currently have a manager, obviously. I'm not going to ask you who who your candidates are right now, but I did want to ask you just if if you have an idea at this point of the type of manager. What, what I guess, features are you looking for in the next manager of the Baltimore Orioles? Well, it's a good question, and um... – we don't. We're not entering into this process with a cookie cutter profile in mind, and one of the reasons for that is when you get into any kind of hiring process for an upper level position, you're, you're dealing with a, a menu of people essentially who have put themselves in a position to be considered for a managerial job. So it's really going to come down to the individual. Uh, but in our situation, I think in anyone's situation, uh, first and foremost, you're looking for leadership skills an ability to connect with players, to empathize with players, and to make players better, and that's going to be very important for us. Uh, Mike, it's uh, Jonathan Mayo. Congratulations. Uh, I think really what everyone wants to know is uh, who are you going to take with the number one pick in the Rule 5 draft? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, uh, but obviously, you know, you've been in the position uh, when you were scouting director with the Astros of figuring out uh, who to take with that number one pick. How do you think – uh, you know your experience in, in Houston. Well, obviously you'll be sitting in you know in a, in a different chair uh, in Baltimore. It will help you uh, going into this uh, really important draft year for for the Orioles with that with that topic in June. I think it's going to help a lot. Um, you know we went through a lot of high draft picks in Houston. Um, we didn't do perfectly, but we did very well. Uh, we had two MVP candidates on MVP caliber players on the, uh, the Astros roster right now that we selected while we were there. We have another player who's uh, a rookie, but he's going to be an MVP caliber player. Um, and we had some episodes that didn't go quite as well. And the good news for me and for the Orioles is that the Orioles are going to be the beneficiary of all that experience, good and bad. And I, I know uh, who a lot of the candidates are for this pick this year and uh, i'm excited about it we're going to do really well with the pick and i'm looking forward to digging in on these players with uh, the Orioles scouts hey, mike I'll, you're drawing another parallel between the the astros and the orioles when you got to the astros coming over from st louis 
know, obviously the team was 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 not doing well. You know, three, number one pick for three years in a row before things started to turn around. How much do you think that experience from basically rebuilding from the ground floor will help you in Baltimore? And how, I guess, comparable are the two organizations in terms of talent? You know, Baltimore now to Houston when you arrived in Houston. Um, I think one of the things that's going to prove comparable is if you look at the Astros team in, in 2012, our, our first year there, there were a lot of really good players on the roster and in the system who ended up being huge parts of the 2017 championship team and the first playoff team in 2015 and, and the core that's there now. And I know and I'm very hopeful that that's the case here in Baltimore. There's a lot of really good players here in the system and on the major league roster, and I'm really looking forward to sort of uh, seeing which one of those guys is going to be part of the next Orioles playoff team because they're here now. But clearly, in general, the, the experience in, in Houston, I think, um, will help me avoid having to learn a lot of the lessons and a lot of the mistakes that maybe we made along the way, and uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that we can uh, achieve similar results one day here. Mike, for, for better or for worse, you know, the Orioles were extremely inactive on the, on the international free agent market, uh, you know, amateur, amateur-wise. I knew they were you know, looking to kind of try to, to change that. How, how do you go about when you're coming in new uh, to, to make sure that you know, those plans continue uh, or that you don't you know, sort of uh, overdo it? You know, well, boy, we've, this organization's done nothing internationally. I'm going to go all in. You know, how do you find that balance in terms of uh, figuring out a way forward in terms of a, a philosophy organizationally? Uh, it, it is a huge priority for us going forward. I am right now working on ways to build out our capabilities and our infrastructure, particularly in Latin America, um, and it's going to be a uh, integral part of us establishing an elite talent pipeline in this organization going forward. Um, I think – the good news for me and um, one of the reasons why I um, was a fit for this job is I am coming off of having been an international scouting director, so I have some working familiarity with the players that are out there on the market. I know the agents and have those relationships. So I think we'll be able to hit the ground running pretty pretty quickly, but we, we are looking forward to building out and uh, advancing our, our activities and infrastructure down there, no, no doubt. And Mike, when you switch organizations like you do, I, I've always been curious, how long does it take to get up to speed? I mean, because it's not just the major league roster, which is in flux because it's the off season right now, but also an entire farm system of players. How how long do you, do you think it takes? You know, are, are you already comfortable, or is it still kind of a learning process because there's so many players and, and, and personnel to kind of you know have to get to know? It does take a while. Uh, it takes about a month to get your we and they straight. Um, so the <laughs> pronouns is the, the, the first step, um, having gone through this once before. But, um, uh, you know, there, you do have to learn uh, new players and new staff. Um, and uh, I, I think coming off of a, a scouting director path, especially international and amateur, help, is helpful because you're familiar with a lot of these players from the time when they were amateurs. Um, but the most important thing is there's a lot of people here doing a lot of good work, and you lean on them and trust them because they know the players better than you do. So that's, that's a big part of the transition, and that helps a lot. But it is, it is a process. 
Well, obviously, uh, you know, analytics, advanced metrics were a big part of uh, what you guys did in Houston and a big reason for your success. You also have that, you know, the quote-unquote old-fashioned scouting, though I don't really like that term, but you, you know what I mean, these, you know, putting eyes on a player uh, perspective as well. Uh, you know, how do you see that, that balance playing out, uh, you know, as, as you take the helm there in Baltimore? Uh, look, it, it, you know, incorporating all uh, information in your decision-making, especially information that is proven to have predictive power in, in determining the future careers of ball players, is essential. Everyone's doing it. Everyone's trying to do it. Uh, the key is not having to worry about a balance because you've got all of this information coming into one singular approach to where uh, your scouts and your coaches are a part of the information gathering and, and using process and so that there's not a, a double-barrel attack. And um, that's what uh, we're going to try to do well, as everyone else is trying to do well. Um, the good news for me is I've got uh, Sig Meidel here with me now. Um, he, is, uh, he has been a part of building out uh, from their inception, really, two uh, uh, best-in-class uh, analytics departments in St. Louis and, and Houston. So I think we've got the perfect person here to, to, to lead our efforts in that space. Mike, uh, you know, as a, a fellow Northern Virginian like I am, I was curious, did you grow up an Orioles fan? Because uh, you know, when, when I grew up, I think I'm a little bit older than you, but also when you grew up, there was no team in the in the D.C. area. Were you an Orioles fan? They, they would have been the closest big league team at that point. Right. Yeah, that that was the team for us uh, in, in, when you were a kid growing up in Northern Virginia. And, I, you know, I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, so it was it was the height of the Cal Ripken era, uh, Mike Lucina, that 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 whole core um so absolutely what was uh coming to camden yards and and rooting for the o's was part of my upbringing then um you know moving on throughout baseball and you start to work for other teams and, and things you detach yourself from that pretty quickly but um coming here and, I, and coming here when there was a uh, playoff caliber team and seeing what this city and what this uh stadium are like um when that's the case was a big draw for me uh in taking this position all right, Mike, and that brings us to our fastball segment, the questions that Orioles fans really want the answers to. So are you ready for fastball? Let's do it. All right, here we go. Moving back to Baller, the Baltimore area, the team that you just said you grew up rooting for. So do you prefer crab cakes or crab legs? <laughs> I prefer crab legs. I, I, uh, I, I may switch over on that now that I'm in crab cake capital of the world, but I'm, I'm going to have to make a little bit of a transition from Texas barbecue back to Maryland crab cakes, but it should be a pretty smooth one. All right, one of the things Baltimore is famous for, Edgar Allan Poe, his connections there. The Raven or Telltale Heart? Raven. Uh, that was a quick answer. All right. Yeah, um, going back to high school on that one. You mentioned, <laughs> yeah, you mentioned Cal Ripken, and Jonathan Mayo actually got this one and specifically wanted to know, is there a bat phone-like direct line from Cal Ripken into the offices in Baltimore? There will be. <laughs> <laughs> Correct answer. All right. Uh, up next, how often do you do people think you run Elias Sports Bureau and ask you for random statistical information? Not as often as you'd think. I, I wish I ran Elias Sports Bureau, but there is no relation whatsoever. All right. Now, you played college baseball at Yale. Do you remember your career ERA as a Bulldog? 
No, and I think uh, we're winding down here, so this might be a good time to break <laughs> off the, the conversation. Uh, all right, I won't be specific then, but I will say it was it was over five, but you did have some good outings in there looking through the uh, the, the old information. And then it, the, you know that, that's a good that's a good way of uh, knowing it's time to become a scout and not a player anymore. So. <laughs> all right, final question: You come from the Astros, where Orbit has kind of taken over the the baseball mascot world. He's become really one of the best. The Oriole bird is is more of a historical uh, mascot. It's been around a long time. Still doesn't have a name. Will be, any thought be put into giving the Oriole bird a name? You know, I, I've met the bird. Uh, his name is the bird. I think it's been uh, working really well for a long time. And, uh, you know, I, I'm certainly not going to be part of uh, driving any naming process for it. I think I like it. All right. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Great stuff, right. Mike. Thanks for taking some time with us. Okay. See you guys. Thanks. Thanks, Mike. All right, that was Mike Elias, the new Orioles executive vice president and general manager. And he really had some fun with those questions. That was good to hear as well. Um, Guys, it seems like there's going to be a lot of changes in the way things are done with the Orioles. I think we've seen it before with obviously what was done with the Astros. Jim, how similar do you think he will kind of sculpture what happens in Baltimore to what he was a part of in Houston? Well, I don't think it'll be just a direct copy. I mean, we're, we're, I think he'll, like he said, he'll take from the experiences he had in Houston and use them and probably have some of his own uh, philosophies on how things should be done. But I, I just thought he was a great hire. I thought Michael Lass was a great hire for the Orioles. I mean, if you have a team, let's face it, I mean, the Orioles are down and out. They had a horrible year. Their farm system, they're, they're, the farm system is better than the Astros system was when, when Jeff Luno and, and Mike got to – got to Houston, but, you know, it still has work to be done, too. It's not like they're just going to be good in a couple of years based on what's currently in the system. But but to me, if I'm looking to rebuild a team that, that that's basically hit rock bottom, why wouldn't you look to, to, to get some guys who, who worked for the Astros? I mean, shoot, the Brewers, who weren't as bad off, I mean, look how, how far they've progressed under David Stern. So, you know, it, it's not automatic. I mean, I think we look at the NFL, you know, not every Bill Belichick assistant coach has gone on to win the Super Bowl, and, and their track record's spotty. But I, I just think getting Mike, who, you know, people could see in that interview, I mean, you know, he's he's very personal guy, he's a very smart guy. He has experience, you know, rebuilding a, a franchise that's down and out. I, I just thought it, it was such a, a smart hire for the Orioles. Jonathan, having the number one pick, obviously will put the focus on things right away there in June. As the team starts to rebuild, and, and they did make a few trades late last year to bring in some prospects to improve that system a little bit. But how big is that number one pick? I, I mean, I, I think it's big. You don't want to put too much weight. It's one player. I mean, and you look at the Astros, and yes, they they had some success, but their biggest you know miss, you know, in in Brady Aiken, you know, led to uh, led to some other successes, right? They don't they don't get Alex Bregman and and Kyle Tucker. Uh, they don't you know, they don't get both of them. Uh, so it's not just that pick. It's the draft bonus pool that comes along with picking first and what you do in the rest of the draft, especially as you're trying to uh, continue to build up a system, which yes, is a little bit better, but still has, you know, has a, a very long way to go. Uh, you know, they've got the two top 100 players told there's not a lot of elite level impact talent. Um, but more than that, I think from a symbolic standpoint, this is really the first opportunity 
for a, a new regime, a new front office, to put its stamp on what they want the farm system to to look like. It's very important, I think, in that first year to make sure you get that number one pick right uh, and get a player who is going to uh, make a make a, a very large impact. Uh, you know, whether that player exists in this year's draft class, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll obviously have to wait and see. And before they pick number one in June, you mentioned they will pick number one in December at the Rule 5 draft coming to you from the winter meetings in Las Vegas. December 13th is the date for the Rule 5 draft. We will stream it, as always, on MLB.com. We wanted to talk about some of the guys who we could hear. This isn't necessarily Jim and Jonathan's picks for guys who are going to go in the top five of the Rule 5 draft. That information tends to trickle out a lot closer to the actual draft. It's more guys that were not protected by their clubs, are eligible for the Rule 5 draft, and are certainly interesting names that come from pedigree and that sort of thing. So I wanted to get through a few guys with you um, guys. Uh, Let's start with Colton Wong's brother, Keen Wong, second baseman with the Rays, uh, Jim, just talk about this guy. He's a second baseman. He's there in Tampa Bay. He wasn't as highly thought of coming into pro baseball as his brother. Where does he sit now as far as his career? Um, you know, it's interesting because he wound up going back to Durham. He had a pretty good year the year before, and his story came up a little bit when I was doing the AAA National Championship game. You know, he's you know he can hit. You know, he's not super toolsy like. I think it comes down, if he gets picked in Rule 5 draft, it's going to be a team that, that sees him as versatile enough to handle a utility role. You know, he, he, was, he even admitted this year you know, he slumped a little bit. You know, they were promoting guys left and right to Tampa Bay. He didn't get the call. It was a little disappointing. He let it affect his play a little bit, and, and then he bounced back at the end of the year. But, you know, he's, just, he's one of those guys who's a good player but doesn't really have a standout tool. I mean, his best tool is probably his bat. You know, it's, it's probably on the 20 to 80 scale, you know, a 50 bat. Um, he, he draws, you know, some walks, but not a ton of walks. There's not a ton of power. There's not a ton of speed. It's not a big time arm. You know, he, he played, you know, primarily second base. He's seen action in third and center and left. He's, you know, he's kind of, kind of stuck in that netherworld between he's a good triple A player, but it's not a great big league profile. So I'll be curious to see if he gets picked. Jonathan thoughts on Wong? Yeah, I, you know, he's interesting because he was kind of the guy that I thought at some point over the last two years um, would have gotten a taste of the big leagues, you know, <clears throat> just based on him being kind of a steady, at least a replacement-level player. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I think he gets taken, um, and then they have to see if there's a fit, and then, you know, they run him during spring training at every position they can think of. And see how you know how how it looks. You know, second, third, and left he's played. Um, you know, I'm sure you try try him in, in all three outfield spots. See how that looks. I don't put a first baseman's glove on him. See if he can catch the ball. Uh, you know, I don't I don't know what uh, what they'd want to do. Uh, but uh, I agree with Jim. You know, as long as they think that those three, uh, you know, that you know, say even just second and third, then. Uh, and he's played a good amount of left field uh, this this last uh, year. Then I think there's a you know a chance he gets taken. 
Jacob Gate would burst onto the scene back when he was in high school as a senior, kind of starred in that high school home run derby, put on a show at City Field in New York, and made that a bigger part of the home run derby, really, with his performance. He's the Brewers' number 10 ranked prospect, first baseman, buddy, tore his ACL last July, probably the reason he wasn't protected. Jonathan, does he still have the upside that he once did? There's definitely upside there uh, offensively. It's not quite as, as much as you know, when he was coming out and uh, he was a shortstop in high school and people weren't exactly sure where, you know, where he would play. Uh, the raw power is, is definitely there. Uh, and you know, in 2017, he kind of had a, a breakout year uh, where his approach got better, the strikeout rate went down, the walk rate went up. Uh, so it was kind of, oh, now he, he's kind of looking uh, interesting. Then he regressed this year a little bit and then got hurt. What makes him sort of intriguing from, from the Rule 5 standpoint is he's not going to be ready uh, opening day because he tore his uh, ACL. Uh, I think that a team could take him and then put him on the 60-day disabled list. Sort of think about like what the Pirates did. Uh, with Nick Birdie uh, this year. You put him on the 60-day DL. You send him on as long a rehab assignment as possible. Uh, and then eventually you bring him up, especially if you're, say, an American League team where you could DH him uh, and you're not competing in 2019 in any way, shape, or form, and then you know, let him get his active time in. Uh, that's, that's a way to get him into your organization and, and see what happens. If you think that he can control the strike zone just well enough uh, to, to really get to that power more, uh, more consistently. All right, another, game, another name I wanted to bring up. I'll go back to you, Jim. Tyler J., left-handed pitcher, uh, sixth overall pick back in 2015. It's been a struggle with injuries. He's currently the Twins' number 22 prospect. I think he was always considered a guy that could be a bullpen arm. Um, what's the latest on him, and, and what's his upside? Well, I mean, actually, when they drafted him, the thought was they were going to make him a starter, and he just couldn't hold up as a starter. And as you mentioned, I mean, he's had issues staying healthy. I mean, yeah, I mean, you could take a you know a shot and hope he turns into something. But the flip side of that is, like, it's just you know, in, in college, he had such a dominant breaking ball, or maybe some sorry, dominant slider, you know, fastball slider combination. But I mean, he's coming off a year. Where he gave, you know got gave up 74 hits and seven homers and 60 innings in Double A, so I I don't I mean if you're taking him I think you're throwing a dart and hoping that he somehow miraculously turns into the guy he was in college, but he really hasn't been that guy in three years. So I mean could somebody pick him? Sure. Um, uh, you know I, I don't know that that's a real high upside pick based on the way he's performed recently. Back to you, Jonathan. Forrest Wall has bounced around now with the Blue Jays, their number 25, 25th prospect and outfielder now. Um, just talk about Forrest Wall. He still has the standout tool of speed, right? He can run, and if you believe in the hit tool, you think maybe he can hit and kind of kind of get back to it. Um, so he was a guy that I really thought was going to hit. Um, you know, he could hit and he could run, and no one knew where he would where he was going to play because he couldn't really throw. Um, and he's been up and down. And, and, you know, he moved up to double-A last year and struggled once he got there. Uh, sort of found his footing a little bit better, a little bit more after the trade. 
I think his approach has gotten away from him. So, and 135 strikeouts in, in 500, just over 500 at-bats is a lot for a guy who doesn't have a tremendous amount of power, although he, you know, he ended up with 10 homers um, in, in 2018. But he does run well. Um, you know, he, it's a little tough to to see him as a Rule 5 guy just because of the lack of success at the upper levels and the lack of, of defensive home. Uh, maybe you try him in all three outfield spots. Uh, second base doesn't really work. Um, you know, he's had, you know, the, the arm really restricts him. So it makes it a little tougher, um, though the, the speed and, and the potential to, to hit are certainly intriguing. All right, Jim, back to you. Maybe one more guy that I don't have written down here that, that jumps out. Yeah, I mean, a guy who I, I could see getting picked, and I was a little surprised he wasn't protected, although I think it really had more to do with that their farm system's pretty deep, was the A's and Richie Martin. You know, he was a first-round pick in 2015, you know, glove for a shortstop, and he still has that reputation. Um, he's got some speed, and the bat had always been a question, and, and he, he kind of broke through a little bit with the bat this year. He hit 300 in double-A. He, he, he showed you know more gap power than he had previously. I mean, you might have a starting shortstop in Richie Martin, and he's still pretty young. He's only 23. I guess he'll turn 24 shortly after the Rule 5 draft. But I can see Richie Martin, if there's a team out there, like uh, I'll, I'll just spitball here, and I have no idea that they do this, but like, let's say you're the Orioles. Like, you know, why not take Richie Martin in the Rule 5 draft? I mean, you can afford to play the guy. Your, your team's going to be terrible next year. Uh, you know, you don't have a, an obvious shortstop, you know, for the long term. So, I mean, he might make some sense for them. We'll get Mike back on the line and ask him. Yeah, we can <laughs> ask him if Richie Martin's on his radar. We will talk more about the Rule 5 draft in the coming weeks, uh, more so when we get to Las Vegas and are uh, getting ready for the actual event as a little more information comes out about who may actually go high in that draft. One more thing to finish up with on this week's podcast, Kyler Murray, who is tearing up the college football world, and we kind of thought this might happen. He was obviously drafted by the Oakland A's back in the, in June, um, got over a $4.5 million signing bonus from the A's. The deal was he would go to Oklahoma play his junior season, and then give up football and play baseball after that. Um, he has been great. The Oklahoma Sooners have been great. They are heading into the Big 12 championship game with a chance to get the national semifinals. Um, Todd McShay from ESPN guys said he wouldn't, pass the, he wouldn't last past the second round in next spring's NFL draft if he kind of made himself available. I mean, those are big words. At this point, Jim, is he still going to return to the Oakland A's when football season's over? Well, he says yes, although when he was asked about it recently, I thought it was very interesting that he used the phrase as of now in there. It wasn't definitely, which was the plan. You know, the, the plan all along, I thought it was a, a great move by the A's, a creative way to get him signed. You know, Kyler Murray is a guy who's always loved football. That's why he, he wasn't a first-round pick out of high school, which he could have been easily. But he wanted to play college football, and he started at A&M, then transferred to Oklahoma, and had to wait behind Baker Mayfield. And I know in the spring, guys you know, were worried, like, how are we going to sign this guy? Because he's finally going to get a chance to play and probably the most fun offense to run in all of college football. So how are you going to get him away from that? And, and, and the A's, you know, and he worked out a deal 
where he agreed he would go back and play this fall because he'd been dying to play college football and, and be the starter, especially in that offense. And then he would report to the A's. And, and he said, you know, like, the as of now would worry me a little bit if I were the A's just because there's no way you can really force him to play baseball. I, you know, I, I don't know nearly as much about the NFL draft as I do the baseball draft. I mean, looking at Kyler Murray, and I know he's dynamic, but I don't. Like, like, just for me, and I am a big NFL fan, he, he seems very small to me for an NFL quarterback, how long he would last, you know, taking the physical beating that, that comes along with that position. Uh, so I, I don't know about that. Like, the second round might seem a little bit high to me, although it is a bad quarterback draft this year. But the, 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 the one thing that would worry me if I were the A's is you can't really force him to play baseball. They, they did not spread his bonus over a five-year period like you could do with two-sport athletes. He collected roughly a third of it up front. He's going to get about roughly $3 million remaining when he reports to spring training. But after that, like, there's nothing to prevent him from deciding he wants to go back in the fall to play football if that's what he decides he wants to do. And it would be very interesting if, you know, I think he's probably going to finish second in the Heisman voting, even though, Tim, you said we would not discuss his Heisman candidacy. Uh, I think he's going to probably finish second to, to Alabama's quarterback, Tua Tagovailoa, who <laughs> well is about from last year's championship game. But, like, what if what if he finishes second in the Heisman race and they go to the playoffs, don't win, and he feels like there's unfinished business, he may want to go back for one more football season, and, and there's not really much the A's can do about it. it you know, there was a risk. They knew what the risks were. I mean, I think if uh, I would just, you know, if I were the A's, I would subliminally, like, send him, uh, like, video and messages about Charlie Ward and, uh, you know, how he was a Heisman Trophy winner who, no one sniffed in the NFL and uh, ended up playing in the NBA for a long time, so that he should, you know he should stick with that other sport and see how that goes. Um, but yeah, I, I, it was, they obviously knew what the risks were going to be. They had some certainty that he was going to play baseball, otherwise you know, maybe they don't necessarily take him where they took him and 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 you know didn't spread the bonus out and all those sorts of things. I, I think it, it's going to work itself out. Um, hopefully, they don't have to wait a, another year for him to play another year of college football or for him to decide, Hey, I'm going to give the NFL a, uh, a try. But uh, I have a feeling that uh, we're going to see Kyler Murray playing professional baseball next summer. I haven't seen a ton of Oklahoma football this season. I did watch the game against West Virginia on Friday and he was spectacular. 20 of 27, 364 yards, three touchdowns through the air. And then he ran for over a hundred yards and another touchdown. I mean, his season stats are off the chart. And that offense you mentioned at Jim is, is so much fun at Oklahoma. Um, but the one thing that stood out to me more than anything else, other than how great he was, was how little he looks when he's lined up behind center. I mean, he, it almost looks like he's a little high school player lined up behind all these big college players. And I can't even imagine that at the next level at the NFL, but that said, he is exciting, and he's certainly having fun this season. And the good news for the A's, I guess, is that so far he's been very healthy this season, which was one of the other concerns that he could get hurt. But um, he's certainly um, tearing it up on the football field. Jim, one more thought? Yeah, I was going to say, I, mean, I think he'll definitely report to him in spring training and collect that bonus, and, and we'll see. I'm going to I'll, I'll mock uh, our Jonathan gently. I'm sure he will play professional baseball this summer. The question is, is he going to be back in Norman during the fall? Is is really the question? I was so, dodging uh, it. Come on, I was. I, well, I know. Like, I'm not. I'm, gonna, I'm giving you a hard time. But uh, no. you know, the, the one other factor I wonder though is, 
like, you know, you have to theoretically be academically eligible to play, and if he goes off and plays baseball, then maybe he won't have the credit hours, and that will work in Oakland's favor. But uh, if I'm with the Oakland A's, I'm hoping that Lincoln Riley, the head coach of the Sooners football team, takes an NFL job, and maybe that makes Kyler Murray a little bit less likely or less desirable to to go back to Oklahoma. But I think it's going to be really interesting to see what's going to happen because they're either he's either going to finish first or second in the Heisman race, and they're either going to make the playoff or just miss out. And I wonder if he's going to feel like there's unfinished business there. Yeah, we will certainly find out. If you are a college football fan, you have at least – Two probably exciting games of Kyler Murray left as he plays in the Big 12 championship game. And then at least a bowl game, if not a semifinal, and then a final in the uh, the bowl championship series now. So good times to, to be a, a football fan there at Oklahoma, obviously coming off what they did last year and the quarterback in, in Baker Mayfield and then having Kyler Murray. And hopefully the A's have a lot to look forward to as well. That's going to do it for this edition of the Pipeline Podcast. For Jonathan Mayo and Jim Callis, I'm Tim McMaster. Thanks for tuning in.